A word of warning. This podcast may contain themes that some listeners might find distressing. Not always, but sometimes. However, this podcast will definitely contain strong language. Therefore, if neither of these things sound appealing, it's probably not the podcast for you then, is it? Hello and welcome to this episode of the Narcissist Ramblings podcast with me, the Narcissist Psychologist. Today's episode is the second in a three-part series looking at toxic masculinity. In the previous episode, we looked at the term toxic masculinity and examined, somewhat succinctly, I'd like to think, however you may hold different views of this, what masculinity is, what it means, and how this then related to the idea of toxic masculinity, with a primary focus being on the controversy and pushback that exists around the term. Ultimately, the main theme of the episode was me wondering what we would call toxic masculinity if, because we don't like the term, we didn't call it toxic masculinity anymore. If you're joining the podcast at this juncture and you are curious to know what the conclusion was, or you just haven't the fucking foggiest clue what I'm chatting about, please do go back to episode two and have a listen. This episode is likely to make more sense if you do. If, however, you are a diehard fan, as diehard a fan as someone can be uh, with a podcast that's only three episodes in, and you're already and you're already up to speed with all things toxic masculinity related, then today's episode is going to focus more on the harm that toxic masculinity can create. And by harm, I don't mean the harm caused by those offended by the term or who think that the term is having a negative impact on men. I have my own views on that, mostly that I think it's ever so slightly a bunch of bullshit, but that's my own personal view. And I'm aware that there are others out there who think that the term itself is having a direct impact on men and the way that men view themselves. My argument, as is laid out in the previous episode, is that this impact on men, if there is one, likely stems from a gross misunderstanding of the term which is why I decided to dedicate some time in the previous episode to unpacking the term as best I could. Just to clarify, I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that some people think that the term toxic masculinity is potentially impacting men's view of of themselves. What I am saying is that there is no definitive proof that this is happening. And by proof, I don't necessarily mean um, like experimental clinical trials or empirical research or anything like that, because as I'll mention shortly, toxic masculinity is hard to conceptualize properly for you know experimental and research purposes. What I mean is that I'm not sure how the term, as it's meant to be understood, would have a negative impact. But if there is a negative impact, it's my view that it's my view that it stems from a misconception about what the concept of toxic masculinity is actually trying to highlight in terms of issues around our current socially agreed ideas of manhood. Because online, I am familiar with the rhetoric that toxic masculinity labels men as bad and locates badness within men, which is not the purpose of the the conceptualization of toxic masculinity, but rather it's a commentary on society and the culture of manhood which forces or coerces or justifies men acting in certain harmful ways. Anyway, I'm getting into territory covered in the previous episode, so go check that out if you're interested. And despite being a skeptic about the supposed ne- the supposed negative impact of the term that could be that it could be having on men, I like to think that I have somewhat of an open mind and will you know happily look at some good research or just some sound logic that proves me wrong if that ever comes along. But for now, the harm caused by toxic masculinity that I'm going to focus on is related to the harm inflicted upon groups and individuals by those who embody and live by the traits that constitute toxic masculinity. That being traits like endorsing beliefs uh, about the benefits of and the use of violence, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, domination and bullying, and the suppression of emotion. Who does toxic masculinity harm and how? Before we get into this, I'd like to make some caveats, as I usually do. Um, This discussion is all theoretical, and by theoretical, I don't mean that the harm being caused is only happening in theory. What I mean is that, as as discussed in the last episode, the definitions and actions that make up toxic masculinity are not clear-cut, even though I tried to clarify this as much as I could. Therefore, if something is hard to define, it is also therefore hard to operationalize and test or conduct research on. As in, it's not possible to make any definitive empirically based conclusions about the harm of toxic masculinity because it is hard to directly and empirically measure the impact of toxic masculinity due to the issues in defining it. But what you can do is draw correlational links. But correlation is not causation, I hear you cry. And well done if you did. (laughs) Firstly, 
uh, most research in psychology is usually correlational anyway. And someone please fact check me on this if you want to, uh, in that there is uh, usually either a weak or strong association between two variables, uh, but that causality can never be 100% determined due to the possibility of extraneous, i.e. unknown, variables that could impact on the outcome of an experiment. And so you would be right. Correlation is not causation. Um, but seeing as we seemingly can't seem to agree on how to divide define and therefore operationalize toxic masculinity because toxic masculinity is you know based on gender norms for men that have just evolved over time and just are what they are uh, correlation hypothesis and logic are the best things that we have to work with so that's what we're going to do obviously i haven't sucked these harmful impacts out of thin air uh, I have read some books and I have read some articles to shape this episode and I will reference them where relevant. Uh, but just know that none of what I've, what I'm about to talk about is something that's actually been like, you know, proven by science or whatever. Again, the usual caveats exist. Uh, I'm not an expert. I've just read some stuff, which I thought would be worth sharing. And as always, uh, you know, please look further into anything I say in this episode or in any of my podcasts uh, to increase or expand your own understanding of uh, the issues discussed. The first group of people that toxic masculinity impacts is possibly one of the more obvious ones, and that's women. I'm not a female, nor do I identify as a woman, therefore I have not experienced any of the things discussed in this section as a woman. This section is representative of how I understand toxic masculinity's influence and its impact on women. Therefore, if I get anything wrong, it stems from my lack of experience and possibly my erroneous interpretation of any kind of research in this area and is not meant to offend or misrepresent its experiences. One of the things I'd like to do later on in, this, in the development of this podcast is I'd, uh, I'd like to have guests and I'd love to have a guest on this podcast to discuss the subject in more depth. Um, but until then, this is what I have to offer and I hope I do it justice. With regards to women and toxic masculinity, you are more often than not uh, likely to come across discussions of toxic masculinity within the context of violence against women. And this usually revolves around discussions of, uh, discussions of um, sexism and misogyny. Sexism, in case you don't know, is discrimination against a person based on their gender. So technically it can go both ways, which is often the argument of most men's rights activists, but we'll get into that another day. But while sexism can technically be perpetrated against both genders, it is typically and more pervasively perpetrated against women. From what I have come to understand about masculinity and the nuanced differences between hegemonic masculinity and toxic masculinity, if uh, you'd like to know more about these nuances, uh, listen to the episode before this one. Sexism has developed as a consequence of the patriarchal nation, nature of our uh, current hegemonic form of masculinity, or the, the culture of the man box. In their paper, Hegemonic Masculinity, Rethinking the Concept, Connell and Messerschmitt write that hegemonic masculinity, which is basically the current most celebrated and honored form of masculinity at any point in time, culture, or context, exists solely in its position to oppress or dominate femininity, that being women. Um, masculinity has developed over time, and somewhere along the line, Sometime in the 17th century, I believe, women and femininity came to be seen as lesser than men and masculinity. Now, I'm no gender historian, and I'm sure there is plenty of gender studies research that highlights when and how this came about, and that's a bit beyond the scope of what I want to discuss today. But it is worth noting that Connell's theory of hegemonic masculinity states that past and current forms of masculinity have existed in order to subordinate femininity and to celebrate notions of, I guess, what you might call patriarchal masculinity. Misogyny, however, is where I think notions of masculinity come into play more specifically. Um, in the previous episode, one of the important distinctions between hegemonic masculinity and toxic masculinity was that hegemonic masculinity, or the man-box culture of masculinity, um, are the rules for manhood, while toxic masculinity is the harmful and unhelpful ways in which men interpret those rules, which then shape their beliefs, attitudes, and actions. In part one of the series, I went through uh, these rules of the man box. And the rules of the man box that relate to women are real men are sexually dominant, real men have control over women, real men are providers and never carers. Um, 
and you know so you can see how these rules lay the foundation for for some men acting in some pretty shitty ways misogyny as defined by the trusty starter reference wikipedia <laughs> is um is hatred or contempt for women it is a form of sexism used to keep women at a lower social status than men thus maintaining the societal roles of patriarchy the Wikipedia definition was taken from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann, uh, which I've not read yet, but, uh, you know, sounds really interesting um, and is on my to be read list. So misogyny, how is misogyny different from normal sexism, though, you might be wondering. Um, about a year ago, uh, you know, when I started this um, Instagram account of mine, uh, I discovered that sexism is best thought of as ambivalent, as in there are two contrasting ways of thinking about sexism, specifically sexism towards women. The concept of ambivalent sexism was first uh, first proposed by Paul Glick and Susan Fisk in, a, in about the 1990s. The two contrasting forms of sexism that exist are something called benevolent sexism and hostile sexism. Benevolent sexism is best thought of as a set of attitudes toward or beliefs about women that categorize them as fair, innocent, caring, pure, and fragile, rather than being overly misogynistic, or sorry, rather than being overtly misogynistic, these attitudes are often characterized by a desire to protect and preserve women. On the other hand, hostile sexism is most often associated with negative prejudice against and hostile views of women that are rooted in the belief that women are inferior to men. Um, these definitions are taken from what I think are three journal or like editor editorial commentaries that are sort of just clumped together on one PDF, uh, which I'll include in this episode's um, references and show notes. Um, but I'm going to read a few paragraphs uh, from one of the commentaries on hostile sexism written by someone called Tay Hack. Hostile sexism comprises beliefs that women do not belong in the workplace and are too sensitive and emotional to be in high status positions. A hostile sexist might believe that women who do enter the workforce will likely make excuses for their own incompetence by complaining that they are victims of discrimination. Hostile sexists also perceive women as weak and dependent and not able to independently handle situations in life. Oh, sorry, handle life situations. Therefore, men need to be the ones in control. As such, women should be grateful for everything men do for them, and they should submissively submissively accept their pre prescribed female gender role. Such hostile sexist beliefs incorporate the idea that women's that a woman's place is in the home, and that women should be ones to cook, clean, and take care of the children. Another quote from Hack reads. Another notion underlying hostile sexism is the idea that women use their feminine wiles to gain special favours from men. In this view, women use sex to tempt and manipulate men in order to achieve power over them. Women are perceived as whiny teasers who want to control men by using their sexuality. For instance, hostile sexists believe that women enjoy leading men on, but, never, but whenever men respond by showing interest, women delight in shutting them down and refusing their advances. Furthermore, hostile sexist views include the perception that once in a relationship, women will continue their attempts to control men by putting them on a tight leash. <sighs> now, if you're not familiar with incels and pickup artistry, this last quote is quite literally the underlying beliefs of those two sectors of what is known as the manosphere. However, discussions around the manosphere and incels and men's rights activism is something that I am saving for another day. So I won't go in go into it here. But uh, if I've piqued interest, though, do read a book called Men Who Hate Women by Laura Bates. Um, it's grim, shocking and disturbing, but is equally fascinating and a hugely important book in my view. So then, um, the key difference then um, between misogyny slash hostile sexism, and I guess you would call it general slash benevolent sexism, is the hatred or contempt for women, which could be argued fuel and are further fueled by toxic beliefs about women in a really unhelpful and unhealthy vicious cycle. But let me just be clear, like I am by no means saying that the beliefs endorsed by um, men who endorse benevolent sexism are great. After all, they still position women as weaker and in need of being looked after uh, by men, which is still bullshit. Um, but they are not necessarily fueled by this strong contempt held for um, women 
within hostile and misogynistic beliefs. And it's this hatred and contempt or, I guess, general disregard for seeing women as worthwhile individuals and valued human beings that likely fuels toxic masculine behaviours that then primarily drives violence against women. You know, be it physical violence or psychological abuse in the instances of domestic uh, abuse and intimate partner violence, uh, murder, femicide uh, or sexual violence. As with everything, behaviours occur on a spectrum. Some behaviours can be more covert or implicit, while some are more obvious and overt. In this way, misogyny and hostile sexism does not necessarily result in overt and direct aggression towards women. But what misogyny does and has created and continually contributes to is the perpetuation of rape culture. Um, 11th Principle Consent, a non-profit organization that aims to increase awareness and education around consent, developed an in infographic called the Rape Culture Pyramid. Uh, see the further reading section in the show notes to see uh, this pyramid. Um, the pyramid highlights that rape culture, which um, is defined as a, a society or environment whose prevailing social attitudes have the effect of normalizing or trivializing sexual assault and abuse, um, is built on the foundation of men engaging in low levels of misogynistic behaviors that normalize sexual aggression towards women, uh, which then only serve to then uh, justify other men engaging in, in more and more prolific uh, and harmful behaviors, which then justify even further harmful behaviors and so on and so forth. So, for example, uh, the pyramid suggests that um, rape culture kind of begins with the tolerance and acceptance of sexist attitudes, rape jokes and locker room banter, and that this tolerance then permits the normalization and tolerance of catcalling, unwanted sexual touching and stalking, the tolerance of which then permits and normalizes flashing and exposing unsolicited nude pictures and so on and so forth, uh, so on and so forth, which then, uh, you know, at the very extreme end, in some men's minds justifies and normalizes more harmful sexual violence such as um or even you know uh, ridiculously harmful sexual violence such as abuse the use of drugging and rape um but i guess it's not just misogynistic beliefs that perpetuate rape culture because there are many men out there who do not hold such uh, you know openly hostile sexist views about women in fact, I would probably argue that if most men hold sexist views of any kind, they are more likely to hold um, the benevolent slash, you know, general in inverted commas sexist views. Uh, those views um, that uh, women are, are seen as fragile and in need of protecting. Um, and I guess most men are more likely to think of themselves as chivalrous white knights than anything else. So then, if hostile and misogynistic views aren't uh, held by the majority of men, why does a pervasive rape culture still exist? Why haven't the men who don't hold these sexist, these hostile sexist views done anything about it? Well, the answer is both simple and disheartening. A culture that normalizes aggression and violence towards women, specifically sexual violence, exists because other men are because of other men's silence on the issue. As Mark Green puts it in his book, the little uh, Me Too Handbook for Men, men's overwhelming tendency to remain silent in the face of daily denigration of women supports the continuing normalization of sexual harassment and violence against girls and women. He also goes on to write, uh, so he, sorry, he also goes on to write that, uh, and he says, so let's be clear, no one is collectively calling all men rapists. What we're saying is millions of men are choosing to remain silent about the abusive behavior we often witness, and this allows for a culture that puts women in danger. What's more, we aren't even fully conscious of why we choose to remain silent. Manbox culture contributes to the normalization of sexual violence when it encourages men to denigrate women as part of our performance of masculinity. Even though millions of us don't agree with this behavior, we are conditioned to avoid conflict with other men when they do this. This is because the men who openly degrade women are primed to attack us as well. They are the alpha bullies of manbox culture, and the first rule of avoiding them is to avoid any defense of women. Mark Green touches on something at the end of this quote, which I think is quite important for how the manbox and toxic masculinity impacts on men. I'll explore it a bit further in the episode, but it's worth touching on now as in its relation to men's silence against male violence towards women. 
Mark Green notes that men are conditioned to avoid conflict with other men in relation to their behavior towards women, which is something he notes happens over time and occurs as boys and girls are socialized, you know, as different. We are told that having girls as friends makes us sissies or wimps or even gay, apparently. And even though we might not hold hostile views of women, we are taught from very early on through societal norms, but also through what can easily be called bullying, you know, either casual bullying in the form of banter and in quote, in, you know, quote unquote banter by our friends, by our friends and family or outright psychological, physical bullying that to defend a woman or a girl is a transgression against the rules of the man box and we are liable to be swiftly policed back into line so much so that we start to potentially internally police ourselves we tell ourselves not to get involved it's not going to make a difference anyway at least we're not the ones being a sexist prick but that doesn't help victims really does it it might make us feel good and it might ease our own conscience that we're not that guy but not being that guy and letting that guy get away with whatever he's doing is I'm sure some would agree, and certainly I would argue, just as bad. I'll end this section with one more quote from the book, which if you have followed me for the past few months or have listened to my previous podcast, you will know that I recommend time and time again, but for good reason. Again, Mark Green writes, and the following is part of, is uh, based on US statistics, but the point he makes is still pretty noteworthy. He writes, imagine 10 women you know personally. Statistically, two of them are likely to be rape survivors. Which two? We don't know, do we? Now imagine your child's or any child's classroom. Picture any ten of those little girls. Which two of them will be rape survivors? Are we there yet? Are we feeling a little sick? Because this is a place men need to get to on the question of the Me Too movement. If men want to really and truly help, the central challenge we must collectively address is how we are trained from an early age to normalize a whole range of lesser acts of sexual violence and abuse against girls and women. The next section of those harmed by toxic masculinity focuses on men. Um, but this is divided into two parts because there is, I guess, suppose nuance to how men are affected. Um, because hegemonic or man box culture has rules that only some men can achieve. But it also differentiates between hierarchies of masculinity. Therefore, the next section will focus on men in general and how rules of our current man box culture impact most men negatively through toxic masculine behaviors, while the second section will focus on how toxic masculinity <clears throat> affects men who fall into certain marginalized and oppressed populations, um, you know, specifically the LGBTQ community and men of certain uh, color or certain classes. As noted earlier, the impact of toxic masculinity is most often considered within discussions about aggression and violence towards women. Far less discussed and often overlooked is the impact that hegemonic and toxic masculinity has on men. Um, some of this section is based on bits I have read, but other bits are, I guess, anecdotal, relate to either my personal experience or my experience as a clinician uh, through discussions I have had with men about their life's difficulties and how these difficulties have been influenced by ideas of, of, of what it means to be a man. Um, I'm also aware that uh, what I might say and how I might think about things uh, comes through a very white Eurocentric lens. Uh, I can't help that. Uh, but what I've tried to do is think about things as broadly as I can, while adding as much nuance as is possible without necessarily homing in on <laughs> specific areas too much. Um, so yes, I will speak in generalities. So some of what I might say might apply to most men listening, uh, or to any men you might know of if you don't identify as a man, um, but some of it might not. So um you know, I invite you to take what you will from this, um, but also to use what doesn't apply to you to reflect on how these, uh, how those particular effects of to toxic masculinity uh, might affect men that you know. So, <clears throat> sorry. So another rule from uh, the man box, but one that impacts men specifically, is that real men don't show emotions. And in the book, Is Masculinity Toxic? Andrew Smiler writes, Masculine norms discourage men from expressing or examining their feelings in depth and instead encourage men to have a stiff upper lip and play through the pain. This results in many men grappling alone with a problem they are unable to solve. So pretty much from a young age, boys are told that they don't cry or big boys don't cry more specifically, and that we are meant to be strong and tough, which is another rule of the man box. We then learn, we then learn to suppress our emotions 
but not only that, um, but due to the way that boys and girls are socialized, girls are, are encouraged to be, <clears throat> sorry, girls are encouraged to be more emotionally attuned, which is based on the idea that women are supposedly biologically more nurturing and empathic than boys. And that boys are more doers and fixers than carers and feelers. Than carers and feelers. <laughs> um, research, research suggests, however, and here I quote from a paper called Brain Development and Physical Aggression by Lisa Elliott. The fact that prepubescent boys across diverse cultures act in nurturing ways towards younger children shows that males' potential for empathy and caregiving is as quote-unquote, innate as their potential for aggression. So we'll come on to that bit about aggression in a little while. Um, but what that quote highlights is that boys can and do act in nurturing ways towards each other. However, Mark Green writes that one of the things that the man box culture does well is suppress boys' and men's relational capacities for empathy, which he puts as no accident. He further writes that it is the suppression of empathy that makes it a, that makes a culture of ruthless competition bullying, and codified inequality possible. It is in the absence of empathy that men fail to see women's equality and many other social issues for what they are, simple and easily enacted moral imperatives. Empathy is our capacity to perspective take, you know, to put ourselves in the shoes of others, to think about what things might be like for another person and help us make social connections on a meaningful level and not just on a not in just a superficial sense. But if as boys we are taught that empathy, you know, that feeling sorry for others, for being moved by the pain or the enjoyment of another person, is not something that we are supposed to do, or that it is girly to do so, then over time we shut it down. Now I'm not quite sure about the precise mechanisms of how this gets done, but it but it does, you know, it gets suppressed and it gets shut down. Um, so along with the rule of men are physically strong and tough that accompanies the rule of real men don't show emotions is another rule that real men don't ask for help, which is obviously because, you know, real men are physically strong and tough. Also, how would we ever really register that we might need help if, if, we, uh, if, we, continually, if we continually suppress or ignore any kind of emotional signals that alert us to the fact that we might not be okay? There are statistics abound about how men have shorter life expectancies. Globally, men are more likely to die of cancer, have higher rates of heart disease, diabetes, and things like that. Um, and I think there's previously been a focus on the biological differences in men and women that could potentially explain these differences in health outcomes. But the more and more we are becoming, we are coming to understand that there is actually very little difference between men and women on a fundamentally biological basis, uh, and that there is um, even an expansion into what we know as the sex binary. Biology does not always account for these poor health outcomes. Obviously, I'm not talking about the fact that if your parents have poor cholesterol or have any kind of illness, um, because, you know, if they did, then there's a higher likelihood that you would have uh, bad cholesterol or develop whatever illness it is that they, they have, because, you know, that's passed down genetically. What I mean is that there are no fundamental biological differences between the sexes, other than in sort of uh, the development of reproductive organs or external physical attributes to indicate that men should be dying younger. More and more thought is being given to how men are socialized, how, as noted earlier, for men to seek help is to be seen as weak. And God forbid you should want to make sure you're healthy and fit to try live longer. No, no, that shit is weak, bro. <laughs> but it's not just disease that kills us. Uh, we men are also more likely to kill ourselves. Most statistics that are available for the rates of male suicide put us at three to four times, uh, three to four times higher rates uh, of completed suicide than women. And you know, it's my view that uh, suicide is the combination of all three of these interlinked rules of the man box taking effect. So we suppress and ignore our emotions, but we struggle with them when they do show up because inevitably they do. Um, you know, we can push, uh, there's this um, metaphor about um, taking a beach ball or a football or whatever you want, whatever kind of ball you want, um, and trying to hold it underwater. Um, and guess, you know, having that battle with, with holding a ball underwater, eventually, um, you know, the, the, the ball will get free and it'll pop up. That's pretty much like how we try and suppress emotions. Um, no matter how much we try and push our emotions under the water, at some point, they'll find their way to the surface. Um, 
okay i've lost my place now oh yes um but because we want to be seen as tough or rather not to be seen as weak uh, and to give the illusion that we are okay or because we don't know how to say that we are not okay because we're not we aren't really sure um anyone will listen we don't seek help um according to the mental health foundation website only 36% of referrals to talking therapies are men and this is not to say that talking therapies are what will stop men from killing themselves entirely, but it does highlight that men are not accessing the potential help available. Now, I don't want to dismiss the systemic and social barriers that exist for people to access talking therapies or mental health support in general. And I'm not saying that all men's issues are going to be solved by just rocking up to therapy. The factors that influence a person's decision to complete suicide are massively complex and can range from job loss to career pressure, relationship difficulties, substance use, which is something we'll come on to in a second, socioeconomic status, and lots of other things. But it seems that the idea of not looking weak, as well as not being able to recognize when we are struggling with our mental health, potentially adds another barrier to um, being able to ask for help. But it works both ways, right? In order for somebody to talk, they must have some sense that somebody else will listen. But the man box and hegemonic masculinity tell men that they don't show emotions, and therefore others may not react. Uh, others may not react well or know how to react if and when a man does decide to open up. Choosing to open up and talk about shit is going to take courage and it takes a certain amount of vulnerability, something that men will likely struggle with and something that they might not necessarily be wholly comfortable with. So if that happens, men need to be listened to, not shunned or shamed or told to man up or harden the fuck up. Having said that, according to a 10-year follow-up study by the mental health charity Mind, who looked into men's mental health in 2009, it has been noted that in 2019, men are 10% more likely to look for information about their mental health online, 12% more likely to see their doctor, 5% more likely to talk to their family, 4% more likely to find a self-help book, and 11% more likely to find a therapist or counsellor. Now, these aren't necessarily huge shifts in a 10-year period, but it is an indication that perhaps that perhaps men uh, are more able to, for whatever reason, uh, seek help for their mental health. So another consequence of being told that men uh, do not or should not feel emotions or that we should temper our emotional connection with others is that we tend to not know what to do with our emotions when they arise because we have not necessarily been taught how to manage or deal with uncomfortable emotions like guilt, shame, sadness, and disgust. Um, you know, we probably get a bit confused by them. They become overwhelming, uh, too much to handle. Um, so we find ways to deal with those feelings or rather to avoid dealing with those feelings. Men, and, you know, again, talking in very general terms, but it's, something that i'm aware of um that men are excellent avoiders of all things emotional um one of the ways in which we sort of avoid this emotional discomfort is through banter uh we make jokes we put humorous spins on things we make light of anything that remotely feels like they might that might be heavy or serious because if we're laughing they are not necessarily feeling uncomfortable right it's the emotional equivalent of playing a hot potato and making a joke is metaphorically saying, fuck, I don't know what to do about this, but yeah, have it back and I've coated in something funny. Um, and now I'm not trying to, you know, um, to say that I'm not trying to shit on, uh, I'm not trying to shit all over having a laugh, you know, with your friends and your mates. Laughter and laughing is a fantastic way to engage with your friends or family, your loved ones. So I'm not saying that every single time somebody has a laugh, it's avoidance of emotional discomfort. Equally, I'm not saying that bringing levity to a serious situation um, can't be a good thing. Being irreverent about certain things and creating a humorous situation can be, you know, sometimes be the emotional push that somebody needs to break out of a bit of a funk or if they're feeling stuck about something. But what I am trying to say, though, is that if you as a man or um, your male friends only have a joke about serious shit, then maybe it means that you are potentially or almost certainly not able to cope or manage with that serious shit. You know, you might not necessarily know what to do um, when somebody um, brings or wants to talk about some serious stuff in their life. Um, but it might also give the message that serious stuff is, you know, never to be openly discussed. And that men, and that means that men are required to hold on to those problems and to their distress all on their own and deal with it on their own. 
um and that is you know potentially inversely very uh, inversely very isolating and emotionally psychologically demanding because you know it's not easy to hold on to distress and and not um deal with that in some way so what we might do instead is drink our pain away so something else that we do as men is we tend to use substances to cope um, in the adult substance misuse treatment statistic report for 2019 to 2020, uh, published by Public Health England, men made up just over two thirds of those accessing treatment for substances, including alcohol, opiates and non-opiates. Booze is not our friend, guys. Booze is a depressant. That is, it fucking bums us out. So if we're already struggling with our emotions or our mental health or stress or relationship issues, continuously drinking is not going to help us feel better. If anything, it's likely to make us feel worse. And because, we can't and because we can't talk about how we're feeling and offloading some of that shit, we just end up drinking more and around and around we go. Ironically, though, in the book Is Masculinity Toxic? Andrew Smiler notes that one of the reasons that pubs became so popular with men was because it gave them a... Uh, opportunities to socialize outside of work, uh, which if you've listened to the first episode was important because during the industrial age of the 70s, um, again, sort of part of that episode is is a, an interesting insight into how the industrial age is probably um, uh, the catalyst for a lot of um, stoicism and sort of uh, emotional disconnection that is experienced in men. Um, so yeah, so in the 70s, men were actively discouraged from speaking to each other. Uh, to make them more productive at work. So kind of they would then meet each other outside of work, traditionally in sort of these, uh, in, in, in public houses or pubs, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it seems that one of the ways in which men connect with each other also happens to be one of the, uh, one of the unhelpful ways that we deal with our shit. Um, but, I'm pr but I am aware that meeting your mates in a pub for a swift one is still pretty common practice, you know, as opposed to maybe going for a mindful walk in nature whatever, which might be slightly less damaging to our health. Equally, again, I'm not demonizing having a drink now and again, everything in moderation, including moderation, right? Um, but I guess the issue comes in when alcohol or drug use becomes um, a way in which you get through the day or to numb whatever might be going on for us. Uh, that's when it becomes an issue. It's not even about thinking of it as an addiction. I suppose a big clue as to whether you might be reliant on the use of alcohol as a coping strategy is to think about if having a drink or a line of coke is almost an automatic response to feeling stressed or any kind of emotional discomfort. It's just something to think about, I guess. Another consequence of all these problematic ways in which we men deal with our emotions is that we get angry because anger is a good way to discharge all the uncomfortable feelings we have. In the book, Is Masculinity Toxic? It talks about how anger is an emotional funnel system, which we can use to deal with the rest of our emotions that we don't always know what to do with. Mostly, again, you know, because we've not necessarily been taught as children how to deal with these emotions appropriately because, you know, we've been taught, we were told to suppress them. Anger is an interesting emotion. At its most basic level, it is the emotion that we use to protect ourselves. Um, it can mobilize us into action when we feel an injustice has been caused. It allows us to let others know when, uh, you know, something has upset us. But from what I can tell, the emotional funnel system of anger is not necessarily about this. It's about not knowing how to deal with this stuff and then lashing out either at the person who triggered the emotional discomfort, uh, but sometimes also at other people who had, you know, nothing to do with making you feel, um, how you, how you feel in that way. Um, Anger is also what's known as a secondary emotion. That is, it arrives almost immediately after an emotion we don't like, on an unconscious level, I suppose. And here I'm talking about things like shame and guilt. And then we respond with anger, usually aggressively or confrontationally. I guess maybe not many people realize that you can be angry, but it expresses it in a, in a healthy and constructive way. It doesn't, it doesn't always have to be, you know, shouting, screaming, swearing. You can channel it in a way that seeks to resolve the issue in a more constructive way. I might actually do an episode on anger one day. I think it's a fascinating emotion. <laughs> That's right. Only a psychologist would say that an emotion is fascinating. But anyway, moving on. The main point here is that for men, sometimes anger is not always about the trans uh, transgressions of boundaries or values and letting someone know that they have overstepped, but rather we use it because we are more familiar with expressing anger and less familiar with recognizing and feeling other emotions that make us uncomfortable. On a slightly less severe level, our difficulties with empathy, as noted earlier, mean that men connect less with other men. We have a handful of friends that we usually relate to over things or activities. 
you know, things like sports or exercise, films, drinking down the pub, things like that. And this is not to say that we don't have best friends or that we don't have lifelong friends, because we do. But I guess what I mean is that we connect with our friends more over things that we do rather than, you know, things that have a, I guess, maybe more emotional or sort of um, deeper emotional connection, uh, sort of connection on a more emotional, deeper level. I'll use myself as an example, and perhaps other men listening might relate to this, or it might be something that's just specific to me and my friends, I don't know. But, uh, you know, when the first lockdown hit and Zoom socialising was all the rage, friends of mine who I used to live with and who I've known for the better part of a decade uh, used to meet up on Zoom calls for like an hour. And every time we ended, my partner would ask me what, how my friends were, and I'd be like, fine. Um, my partner would then ask, you know, about their lives, you know, or how, what their lives are like or how they're doing, you know, things relating to work, relationships. I think one of them was expecting their first child around the time. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know about those things. Exasperated, she'd ask me what I'd just spent the last hour talking about, to which I'd, you know, shrug my shoulders and be like, uh, you know, movies and shit. Um, we're mostly sort of massive, huge film geeks. Um, and I said, you know, um, and I said, but the irony of what I said kind of only hit me now, has only hit me now in these last few years. Um, and I said to her, I said that we would always tell each other that if, it was, if there was anything important that we needed to let each other know about, we would. But now I kind of wonder if we would. And I also wonder sometimes, you know, how many hardships or stresses, stresses my friends may have been through without me necessarily knowing because I never asked. And when I say asked, I mean like really asked and not in the how's life you bellends kind of way. And this is what I mean. Not that we can't form friendships, but that the foundations of what those friendships are built on might sometimes be something um, more surface level um, that we don't necessarily think about the fact that it's worth asking how somebody else might be feeling or what they might be experiencing. Um, these things are not necessarily something that feature uh, immediately at the forefront of our minds as men. Um, the model of those friendships then potentially translates into the lack of ability to be open about the more shitty side of things in life more broadly. Because if you can't be open with your because if you can't be open with your friends, you know, your closest comrades, those who you choose to spend your time with, then it's probably unlikely that you'll be open to others in your life. This, empath this impact of empathic suppression also means that we connect less with women. It impacts on our abilities to form healthy and wholesome relationships with romantic partners. <laughs> Again, as an example, I'll use myself. But for a long time, like a long time, I was so wary of talking about being in love for years. And I guess as a way to seem cool, I guess, or maybe somewhat edgy or who the fuck knows what I was trying to do at the time. Um, but I often talked about the fact that I didn't believe in love, that I instead, that instead of falling in love, I believe that we rather find people who we can tolerate. <laughs> I even said this kind of shit in the early years of dating my partner. So you can kind of imagine how fucking great I must have been making her feel at the time. You'll be glad to know that I've grown the fuck up and I definitely don't think this way anymore. But even as someone who considers themselves like a nice guy, or in touch with their feminine side, whatever the fuck that might be. This was how shallow my engagement was with emotional connection. Furthermore, the suppression of empathy means that we as men prioritize our own needs, potentially, over the needs of others. It means that we're not necessarily always the best at things, seeing things from other people's perspectives. And I guess this is why men are sort of like doers and fixers, because we, we tend to attend less to the things that require um, more emotional or relational connection. On a more severe level, our lack of empathy is possibly what contributes to our violence towards um, women and each other. Lack of empathy has long been an area of risk assessment with violent offenders and often factors into treatment plans for rehabilitation, often with a focus on victim empathy, which focuses on effective empathy, so how somebody else might feel emotionally. So, for example, how an offender's victim might have felt at the time, of, uh, at the time an offence was committed. Um, I'll be honest, there is some contention about whether victim empathy work should uh, now be included in offender rehabilitation, as in, like, is it fair to ask somebody to have empathy for their murder victim if the victim was abusive? Seems somewhat unethical, but perhaps is, you know, a discussion for another day. 
but increasing empathy is still a key factor in offender re in offender rehabilitation and often focuses instead on trying to help offenders increase their ability to perspective take and increase their cognitive empathy so you know being more able to put themselves in someone else's shoes and think about how their actions might have uh, impacted on you know somebody else or the uh, people around that person a bit like a ripple effect so alongside this, and once more in line with the idea that real men are tough and strong, uh, men are socialized to engage in more violent behavior. So did you hear our phrase that I said men are socialized to engage in more violent behavior? So there has been a long standing and I believe still fairly pervasive view that boys and men are inherently more aggressive. The theories for this relate to evolutionarily, evolutionary and biological determinism. That is, you know, we evolved from cavemen, hunter-gatherers, who used violence and aggression to survive and thrive and essentially become top of the evolutionary food chain, and which is supposedly how we've come to be the dominant species today. Additionally, there has also been a pervasive myth that men and women have typically gendered brains, that men have higher levels of testosterone and uh, bigger amygdalas, so the area of your brain responsible for emotional processing. As mentioned in the previous episode on this topic, the books The Gendered Brain, Testosterone Rex and Humankind are great resources to put to bed these notions. However, if you haven't had the, if you don't have time to read three fucking books, uh, the paper I started earlier, so uh, The Brain Development of Physical Aggression by Lisa Elliott is a great paper to read on the subject. Um, the takeaway message from the paper is that while there is uh, while there might be some slight displays of more boisterous behavior seen in boys like uh, rough and tumble play, potentially influenced by pre prenatal testosterone, the research of which uh, on this in humans is inconclusive. Um, and here I quote from the paper, hormones can buy, sorry, hormones can bias this developmental trajectory in boys, but they do not in and of themselves fix brain circuits for life. To become chronically aggressive, one must have fighting partners and an environment that can tolerate or even encourages such behavior. Such fighting in turn affects brain development in ways that likely facilitates aggression later in life. So, Boys and men are not born inherently aggressive. We are pushed towards being that way through a long-held belief that to be a man, we must be tough and strong, and that one of the best ways to do this is to dominate. Dominate women and other genders, but also other men. And there are many ways to dominate, for example, through intellect and skill in like the workplace, educational institutions, uh, you know, th through uh, so socially, through um, having friends or sort of attractive girlfriends or whatever, or materialistically, like, you know, who has the, the like a fucking nice suit or a fancy car or whatever. But I guess one of the easiest ways to dominate is, uh, if all of those things fail is through aggression and violence. From the book Is Masculinity Toxic, Andrew Smiler writes, Violence provides a method of gaining status or respect by literally beating one's opponent and thus moving up the dominance hierarchy and potentially proving oneself to be the alpha male. He adds, The acceptance that violence is an integral part of enacting power is a key reason men's lives are shorter than those of women's. Men kill at a notably higher rate via homicide and and what could be a clearer indication of power than killing? In most cases, the vast majority of victims and killers are young men aged between 15 and 39. In the USA, for example, 75 to 80 percent of homicide victims each year are men. <clears throat> So in the UK, according to the latest figures from the Office of National Statistics, the percentage of men killed by homicide between uh, March 2019 and March 2020 was 73%. So not only are men dying younger because we have difficulty in seeking medical and mental health support, but we are also literally just killing each other too. Smiler further highlights how socialised pressure and need to dominate also influences the rape culture against women. He writes... Overpowering a partner to convince or intimidate them to have sex can also provide status because the man can claim another sexual conquest and burnish his credentials as promiscuous. The societal pressure to be a man, uh, which for some men can be measured by how many women they sleep with, can impact on how women are viewed and objectified as notches in a bedpost and nothing more. This further dehumanizes women and increases the chances of some men committing acts of sexual violence against them. That shit is fucked up, man. 
bullying is also something that men do to each other. I mentioned this earlier in the uh, section of uh, in the section about male violence against women, but it bears mentioning here again. Bullying seems to be part of the fabric of being a man. Now I'm aware that bullying is not necessarily a gendered behavior, and anecdotally, I know women can bully each other too. Trolling on mum's net comes to mind, uh, which you know, thinking about it now, is something that I would like to discuss with a guest one day. But once more, uh, in his book. Um, Mark Green talks about men's collective trauma, which I found to be an interesting phrase. So he writes, men are in crisis. We are collectively traumatized and often deeply isolated. You know, and it, it got me wondering what he was talking about. Um, so I read the book again. I um, picked up that he talks about men being bullied, policed, kept in line through domination of one another and for the purposes of making sure that we don't transgress the rules of the man box. But more interestingly, and I guess I'd never considered that, uh, you know, bullying could be so pervasive so as to potentially have a traumatic impact on a whole collective of people. Um, I guess in principle, I understood that persistent bullying can take a toll on a person. You know, I was bullied at school to some degree and it's, you know, left some impressions to say the least. But I guess I'd never uh, quite envisioned that bullying could have such a collective traumatic impact. And this might not be even what Mark Green was talking about, um, but I did do some research. And while I don't want to get into this too much here, because um, I think I want to do an episode on this topic in and of itself, uh, there is a very interesting paper called Bullying, Victimization and Trauma, which was published in 2021 by somebody called Thormud Idso and, you know, et al. Um, and basically... The paper details how um, bullying, which is a you know primarily perpetuated by boys and men, um, can have long-lasting trauma. Can have a long-lasting trauma impact that could meet the criteria for a complex PTSD presentation, which is fascinating. Um, you know, I want to say fascinating. I'm sorry. I you know I find uh, I find the awful things that human beings do to each other continually fascinating. I guess that's why I'm in the job, uh, and I guess it's also why I'm like you know niceish. Um, but anyway, uh, bullying ties into this next sort of section of the episode. Uh, there is another collection of men who are affected differently by, I think they're affected differently by hegemonic and toxic masculinity, men who belong to marginalized or oppressed groups. So initially I'd planned for the section to be a bit longer than it is, but I've decided not to delve into this as deeply as I wanted to for several reasons. The first being um you know as i highlighted earlier that um you know i'm a white cisgender heterosexual male and i've no experience of being affected by toxic masculinity from the standpoint of being you know a black or an asian or an aboriginal man uh, or a gay man or a transgender man or a transgender woman the reason I include both trans men and women is because I, you know, I, I wonder if the experience of transition from either gender might have its own unique experiences um, in terms of the impact of toxic masculinity. But you're not a woman and you have no issue chatting about toxic masculinity and how it impacts women, I hear you say. And, you know, you, you are right, I did. Uh, I guess the reason for this the reason for this is that there seems to have been more thought dedicated to examining and looking at the impact of toxic masculinity rather the behaviours associated with the concept of toxic masculinity, to be more precise, uh, on women than there has been on its impact on marginalised or oppressed groups of men. I've had a look, and there's not all that much out there looking into it. Um, you know, I, I'm guessing if I did like a system, uh, systematic review, I could probably find some, but I don't necessarily have the time to dive into that as much as I uh, wanted to. Therefore, I don't necessarily feel able to do this section as much justice as I would like. And, I've, and I guess, as I've said throughout the episode, what I would like to do is I'd like to get guests to talk on about their experiences of toxic masculinity. Um, and I suppose speaking to men from, uh, you know, these population or this population of um, people uh, is something that I'm quite keen to do. Um, but what I will comment on from a sort of more academic standpoint, though, is that Connell, who, who first put forward the idea of hegemonic masculinity, noted that alongside subordinating and dominating women, hegemonic masculinity also seeks to subordinate and dominate other lesser forms of masculinity, which are called, surprise, surprise, marginalized and subordinated masculinities. 
So marginalized masculinity, uh, marginalized masculinities, as defined in "Is Masculinity Toxic," uh, includes support for hegemonic for the the hegemonic form of masculinity combined with the least ability or willingness to adhere to its norms, as well as its lowest level of cultural benefits for being male. Furthermore, marginalized masculinity is enacted by men with the least ability or willingness to meet the hegemonic definition, but who still respect the masculinity hierarchy. This includes men from tolerated minority groups and lower class men in low level service positions. And this is an interesting end to the quote. Nerds have long been the icon for this form of masculinity. So basically what i can derive from this uh, is that the rules of the man box uh, you know hegemonic masculinity were laid down by those men in a position to make you know to make the rules of what it means to be a man which as i guess history dictates has predominantly been white men with money therefore they kind of set the bar and anyone else who is not white or not rich who wants to try and attain those levels of manhood or masculinity, I guess they can try um, if they wanted to, but will likely not be successful. So therefore, you know, um, and on that on that basis, those sort of men who uh, fall into those into that marginalized category of masculinity uh, would be seen as as lesser men or less important or regarded as um, not necessarily. Um, in the same category as as the as the men who who laid down the rules i suppose so therefore it seems that racism and classism are you know toxically masculine products of of the man box so subordinate masculinities and again i'm quoting from is masculinity toxic have notably different definitions from the hegemonic form and are actively discouraged by culture discouragement may take the form of social prohib prohibitions or laws um, so linked to this, and one of the final rules of the man box is, is then that real men are heterosexual and hypermasculine. As such, anyone who is not heterosexual, cisgender, I guess, uh, is then considered to be subordinately masculine and is therefore subjected to either sort of uh, homophobia or transphobia. Uh, which I guess, you know, could be thought of as, as two more toxic manifestations of, of the man box or hegemonic masculinity. So then, in a nutshell, to to adhere fully to the ideals of hegemonic masculinity, one must be white, rich, heterosexual, and cisgender, be dominant over other men, and especially over other women, and willing to use violence or aggression to assert and maintain your dominance. Along with this, you must be stoic and never show emotion, unless it's anger, and you can never ask for help, because to ask for help is to be seen as weak. And to consistently adhere to the ideals of hegemonic masculinity, you may need to engage in harmful, dangerous behaviors and endorse harmful, dangerous beliefs, which could include misogyny, racism, classism, homophobia, and transphobia. This is essentially, as far as I can make sense of it, what toxic masculinity is and why it's so very harmful. Well, that's it. That's my deep dive into the harmful effects of toxic masculinity. Um, I say deep dive. I understand that the, the, that this has both been a whistle stop tour, but I've also talked about a lot of shit um, in one go. So um, I hope I've managed to make some sense, and I've you know I've really tried to capture as much nuance as possible within the time frame of this episode. But it is also entirely possible that this, this that this has been just a solid shit show of nonsensical drivel. <laughs> and if it has i really apologize um but i guess in the next episode what i'm hoping to explore is the other side of all of this so um how we as men can work towards a new ideal of masculinity uh, which is something that i'm you know fully aware of is being worked on by a number of men anyway so you know it's not something new it's not something revolutionary i guess i just want to um sort of take some time to to think about the, the other side of the coin of how we move forward um i want to try and bring some balance to i guess what maybe has felt like a quite heavy topic but one i guess you know that i hope you would agree requires some thoughts and you know maybe some critical analysis so if you've enjoyed this episode and i use the word enjoy very lightly because it's possible that you fucking maybe have not enjoyed this at all please let me know 
And if you'd really like to, please subscribe or rate the show. Uh, and if, if you really want to just leave a comment, so, you know, to let other potential listeners, listeners know about how good or shit the show is, I suppose. Um, and as always, you can find me on social media if you want to discuss things further. Uh, on Instagram, I am the Narcissist Psychologist. On Twitter, I am uh, the Narcissist Psych. Uh, you can also email me at the psych or one word at gmail.com or you can sign up to my blog page at Substack. Uh, I guess you could just search the Narcissist Ramblings podcast and Substack on Google and I'm sure I'll pop up. Otherwise, it's on my link tree on my Instagram page. But yeah, anyway, that's enough bullshit from me. Go and enjoy the rest of your day or not, whatever, no pressure. I'll uh, chat to you later. Cheers.